everyone, and welcome to episode three in our series about contralateral patella tendon grafts for ACL reconstruction. In episodes one and two, we spoke with Dr. Don Shelbourne, and we've covered a couple different topics. The first topic was really about just the evolution and history behind how Dr. Shelbourne got to using the contralateral graft for ACL reconstruction. We talked with him a little bit about the rationale. Tonight, we're going to talk specifically about an article that we just wrote recently and um, was published in uh, the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine with myself and Scott as authors. Uh, Scott's here again tonight, Scott Bauman, physical therapist. This article was published in OJSM in November of 2022 and is titled Range of Motion, Strength, and Function After ACL Reconstruction Using a Contralateral Patella Tendon Graft. And I know, Scott, you put a, a lot of work into this uh, into this study. Talk a little bit about how uh, we kind of utilize this study to put it all together uh, and come up with some outcomes data on using a contralateral patella tendon graft for ACL reconstruction. Sure. And the contralateral patellar tendon graft is not a new concept to our office by any means. Dr. Shelburne, as you, as we learned in the, the first part of this series, has been doing primary contralaterals for his ACL reconstruction since about 1994. And now that we're a good 25, 30 years out from that point, we wanted to get a chance to look at this long-term data. We now had nearly 3,000 patients or more that have had this surgery and we're clinically and anecdotally seeing some great results from these patients. And we wanted to get a, a look from a research standpoint to not only look at the short-term results, which we've published on before, but uh, more than anything, get a look at what these patients look long-term now that we have the data on them. So what we did was take all the contralateral primary ACL reconstructions that we had. We ex excluded four revisions and patients that had an ipsilateral graft tear, as well as a contralateral ACL reconstruction, and came up with 2,148 patients. Why those exclusion criteria? Why did we take people out that had revisions or that had uh, subsequent injuries to the same knee? From a revision standpoint, that's just a whole different beast when you're talking about outcomes. Definitely. I think it's very well established in the literature, not only from our office, but from other offices, that a, a revision surgery is uh, going to typically lead to a little bit worse outcomes, and we wanted to get a sense of what the primary ACL reconstruction population was going to look like when it comes to the contralateral patellar tendon graft. And as far as the ipsilateral graft tear and the opposite ACL tear, we were looking for a clean data set of patients that were able to return to sport successfully uh, without the uh, confounding variable, especially from a long-term standpoint of having that ipsilateral graft tear or the contralateral tear. And we wanted to see what these patients look like uh, in a clean data set. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying not, not of, of course, not, um, not acknowledging that those uh, that those subsequent injuries happen. In fact, we do report on it in the study. But when, we come, when it comes to the, um, you know, those can be put into context versus other type of graphs versus taking the graph in the same side. But we wanted to really look at the uh, the results as it as it pertained to people who had who had a successful graft, did not have a re-injury, and went on to went on to um, uh, to to do relatively well and, and move on with their life after after surgery. So. Um, Scott, tell us a little bit how we got to uh, to, to this data set uh, with some more specific numbers about, uh, you know, we have a flow diagram in the study where we talk about the total number of patients we had, why we excluded them, and how we got to our ultimate data set of over 2,000 patients. Sure. So the, the first point of exclusion was the revision surgeries, which automatically knocked out 330 patients. And the injury to the contralateral knee was 177 patients. So you're talking about opposite knee tears there. Um, and then when it comes to 
subsequent ACL tears, there was a 5% incident rate of the ipsilateral side and a 4.9% of the contralateral side. So as you were alluding to, we, we do report on it, uh, not necessarily as an outcome measure for the specifics of the study, but more so as part of our exclusion criteria. But if you, if you were curious on what the retail rates for our population for contralateral grafts is, 5.5 for the ipsilateral side and 4.9 for the contralateral side. And that left us with 3,122 patients. And then the last point of uh, exclusion was we wanted to have patients that had at least three months worth of data. We wanted to get the short-term objective measures, things like range of motion, strength, KT, and we wanted to have that solidified and have all of our patients have a complete data set, uh, which left us with the population of 2,148 patients. We also have the objective, or I'm sorry, the subjective me measures of the IKDC and the Cincinnati knee rating score, but we left that as more of a secondary analysis. The primary analysis was run on the 2,148 patients from an objective standpoint. And Scott, when you talk about a complete data set for the first three months, I'm always surprised by how many patients don't have that. Why is that, do you think, and what are some of the challenges of capturing more complete data? Well, you, you got to keep in mind that we're a clinical research facility where treating patients is our primary goal. We we run a lot of research and we have a, a pretty integrated and, and robust research department, but at the core of our practice is taking care of patients and doing what's best for the patient. And um, that means things get in the way. You know, we're, we're not running lab or, or bench research where you see these these follow-up rates being 80, 90, or you know, nearing 100%. That's just not realistic in the clinical research world because we are treating patients as our primary focus. So, you know, seeing patients the first three months, um, you would like to think it would be 100%, but in the real world, it's not. And then as patients uh, get further out from surgery, things get in the way, like school and work and life. Yeah. And, you know, they may miss that six month visit and we may see them back in a year or whatnot, but it's, it, it can be a little hit and miss, to be honest with you, uh, after those first initial visits. And you'd like to think that we get patients doing pretty well in the early going and, and they're pretty happy with where they're at. And, and honestly, that's the case for a lot of patients. And, and they feel that I'm back doing what I want to do, whether that's playing sports or going back to school or doing their job. And, and they just don't return for the for the follow-up long-term. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're right about that. And I'm always, I'm always uh, interested when we look back at these patients, how many patients just don't come for a one month visit. So they skip that time point because they, like you said, they, they were, they were out on vacation or they had something happen with a family member get sick that they couldn't come in or they were off at school and there was finals week. So they couldn't come that week and how that ends up impacting whether or not we have a complete data set as opposed to having data at those different time points, but the, the data set being complete. So that is a bit of a challenge. Uh, so I want to have a little bit of comment on that. So once we got down to the uh, to the to the population at hand here, uh, talk a little bit about the outcome measures. You mentioned the uh, the IKDC and the Cincinnati knee rating scale as the objective, or excuse me, of the as the subjective surveys that we got from the patients. But kind of lay it out for listeners as to what our uh, primary and secondary outcome measures were for this study. Well, the primary outcomes were looking at the objective measures early on. As we had been talking about, we wanted that complete data set. And on those 2,100 patients, we wanted to look at their objective range of motion measurements, strength measurements, and KT. So strengthening at our clinic, we, as we touched on in the episode before, we do isokinetic quadricep strengthening. And we look at that a couple different ways. We look at it from a limb symmetry index, where we're looking at what the involved knee looks like compared to the non-involved knee. And then we also take it compared to its preoperative normal value. So with all of the patients that we have in this study, we had a preoperative normal 
value for them on the isokinetic quadriceps strength test, meaning the the non-involved uh, side. So the ACL, um, the one that was not ACL deficient was technically their normative knee. And mm-hmm. we compare that from a percentage standpoint. And then your KT yeah. number is going to be the manual max difference side to side, which we take in millimeters. As you know, it becomes difficult in strength sometimes of how do we uh, how do we benchmark this? How do we do we put it against their body weight? Do we use limb symmetry index? Do we use some specific value? And I know that amongst our research team, there was a lot of discussion about how to move forward with this. And we ended up throwing kind of all of them out there. So talk about those um, those different formulas we use to calculate quadriceps muscle strength, the percent strength involved knee, the ACL reconstructed knee strength and the graft knee strength and kind of why we chose to include all those different parameters. Yeah, the, I'll answer the first or the last question first. Why did we include them? Because I, I really do feel like they're clinically relevant and clinically relevant for different reasons. As we touched on last episode, we talk about limb symmetry index, especially hitting that early. Um, there's some out there that believe that limb symmetry index is underestimating the the true function of where your knee is at we're still big believers in limb symmetry index like i said especially early because we want to get the knees as symmetric as possible as quick as possible and then from a strengthening goal standpoint our secondary goal is going to be getting it back to preoperative normal so we reflected on that and clinically thought that was going to be the most important metric so we wanted to include both of those in there so the limb symmetry index Mm -hmm. is going to be your involved knee which we designate as the acl reconstructed knee divided by the graft knee, and then we just multiply that by 100 to get a percentage, which you can see in the results here. And then the preoperative normal, we're taking that involved side or the contralateral side, whichever one, so the index side, we'll call it, divided by the non-operative pre-op value that we took on the isokinetic quadriceps strength test, and again, multiply that by 100 to reflect it as a percentage as well. And I think it's interesting. Sometimes we spend a lot of time arguing about which one of these is better, and in reality, they all have their own specific pluses and minuses, uh, you know, comparing them to pre-op matters, comparing them side to side matters, uh, you know, and, and whether, which one we consider the normal, you know, as we talked about in the, in the, uh, the initial episodes, uh, about how the graph knee strength is often is almost always less than the ACL knee strength throughout the early portions of the rehab process. It becomes kind of dizzying sometimes to think about which one's the numerator, which one's the denominator. Are we talking about a percentage of the ACL knee? Or are we talking about a percentage of the graph knee? Uh, and then it's then it's about are we talking about percentage of body weight or are we talking about percentage of preoperative strength? So I think it's important to kind of include all those. And that's why we chose as a research team to just put all those out there. You could almost have an entire episode on that that very topic. I think no it's doubt. a really hot issue right Which now. We probably will of, at some point <laughs> in, in terms of what to measure. You know, I think that's something that especially in the rehab world, there's we're still striving for. You know, everybody wants to know what's the return to sport criteria for post-op ACL reconstructions and what value and what metric are you using? And, you know, the argument always ends up being, well, maybe it's not that the measures are poor or that the values are poor. It's just that we're not measuring mm-hmm. the correct thing. And, and you know, that's something that I think every rehab professional and medical professional struggles with in terms of what to actually measure. A topic for another day, no doubt, that we'll have to address. So let's move on to the results in our specific study here. Again, Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, November of 2022. Let's move on to the results here. We ended up with 2,148 patients that met the criteria. A nice large data set uh, from our from our our office database. Let's talk first a little bit about the demographics of this um, of this population, about their age, about the 
sex distribution. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, about uh, about the population. From a demographic standpoint, we, as you mentioned, 2,148 patients. Our average age was 24 years, which we feel like is pretty reflective of the young athletic population that is generally having this type of surgery. And as I mentioned earlier, we do have more males than females, and that's something that also in the literature can can sometimes be a, a, a point of topic, at least, um, with maybe females tearing at a higher rate. But you got to keep in mind these are raw values. We're not looking at incidence of tears. From an overall raw value standpoint, we are typically seeing more males than females females. Let's talk about range of motion. If we've learned anything from Dr. Shelbourne's research, and especially the long-term studies, it's about the vital importance of range of motion, especially knee extension, including hyperextension, all the way symmetric to the opposite side. We believe very strongly that the side-to-side comparison is a very important one, and that the IKDC criteria leave very little uh, room for error or room for difference in what we consider normal. So utilizing IKDC criteria uh, within two degrees of the opposite side is considered normal extension, and that's always our goal. So talk a little bit about what the uh, what the range of motion outcomes were um, and how that progressed through the early rehabilitation. So as our listeners know from previous episodes, we do focus on motion uh, a whole lot, especially knee extension and the sometimes the averages can lie to you from a number standpoint and we like to focus more so on the the difference in extension so if you and i do encourage you to go and look at this uh, article that we have published it would be table two that you're looking at the extension uh hyperextension value is going to be five degrees of hyperextension from one week all the way to six months um but the important thing to, to note is the difference in extension and again we really strive from a rehab standpoint to get that difference of an extension difference of extension down to zero because we don't want to have any difference side to side and our average difference of extension at one week was zero and that continued throughout the course of time all the way through six months flexion as we know is going to be a little slow of a progression due to knee swelling and at one week the difference of flexion from the involved side to the non-involved side was about 30 degrees and it progressed pretty uh, pretty well as it hit the at the two month time point, which we want to start seeing some some symmetry was only eight degrees off from side to side standpoint. And then normalize if you want to go per the IKDC criteria uh, there at three months as it's only four degrees off side to side. And we like to see that extension number be back within two degrees of the opposite side within the first week or two. The averages, like you said, are are very important. And you can see that the the mean difference in extension was zero throughout the entire process. Critics of patella tendon grafts in particular will talk about the anterior knee pain and difficulty with early extension uh, specific to the patella tendon graft. We would say, one, that we don't see that in our own practice. Two, that by utilizing a contralateral graft, that we believe that that uh, definitely makes that process easier or that that problem potential problem easier to avoid so uh and, and then when it comes to flexion at three months we want to see the patients approaching symmetry so talk a little bit scott about uh what percentage how what how how successful were we at getting to those benchmarks to have full hyperextension symmetry to the opposite side within a week or two and full flexion symmet- within five degrees the other side within three months Sure. From a percentage standpoint, the goal is to have everybody uh, within the normal criteria at one week, and we were able to achieve that 95% of the time. So 95% of our patients were having normal extension at one week. And then from a flexion standpoint, at three months per the IKDC IKDC criteria, we had 77% of our patients achieving normal flexion. 
Yeah, and if you look at those numbers over time as we progressed along, 95% of patients had normal extension at one week, 96% at two weeks, 98% at one month. So very few, if any of the patients have more than a, a degree or two of extension difference when it comes to flexion within five degrees of the uninvolved side. 49% already had it at two months, 77% at three months, and by the six-month time, 89% of people had flexion within five degrees of the opposite side. So one of the specific, again, one of the specific uh, advantages that we believe that contralateral allows us to achieve is pretty quick return of ACL knee range of motion, and uh, that the, the numbers definitely bear that out. Moving on to strength, tell us about the strength results. Well, from a strength standpoint, this is where I feel like the contralateral graph really shines because we are able to to tease out those two different goals between the two different knees, and we cover the range of motion on the ACL side. From a strengthening standpoint, the one of the main benefits of having or using the contralateral graft is having the ability to to start strengthening or or regenerating that tendon on the graft side right away, post-op day one even. So from an LSI standpoint, which we mentioned what we want to achieve early, we're able to see a pretty good progression when you're comparing the ACL side to the uh, contralateral graft side. As you can see, uh, at one month, we were able to achieve a 113% LSI, and it progressed towards 100, which is what we want to see from a clinical standpoint, at two months being 105%, three months being 104%, and that stabilized throughout six months at 104%. So we're having pretty pretty normal, I would say, LSI values when using the contralateral graft. Now, I agree. This is one of the... This is one of the spots where contralateral really shines, the early return of symmetric strength. Um, and again, you can have those discussions about do you want limb symmetry index, do you want return to normal? Uh, but but contralateral is, is really able to achieve really both of those goals, and I, th- and I think the numbers here bear that out. Two more points I want to hit before we move on, uh, one being the uh, return to activity, the other one being the subjective survey results. So uh, let's talk about return to sports, specifically uh, the, the, the groups that were um, – the groups that were looking at the higher levels and also uh, whether they were able to attain their preoperative level or higher. So the, we use a modified techner at our office and level 10 is designated as college or professional athletes in, in most sports. Level nine is going to be more of your high school uh, competitive sports. Level eight is recreational sports and, and le- level seven is more just a um, high active lifestyle. So we did include level 10s, 9s, 8s, and 7s. And what we wanted to see was at what rate those patients were able to achieve their preoperative level of function. The highest level, level 10s, were able to achieve it 67% of the time, level 9s, 70% of the time, 8s, 88% of the time, and patients that were less than or equal to 7 were able to achieve it 100% of the time. And I think an important note is even beyond that of the rate of getting back to the pre-injury level all of those preoperative level patients combined were able to achieve level eight or higher 90% of the time. Yeah, you know, we can talk a lot about whether people are getting back to competitive sports at a collegiate, at a high school, at a professional level, whatever it is. Uh, but but really, the, I think the, the minimum we want to be able to get people back to is just to get back to their playing their sport at any level. And, uh, and I think the results of contralateral show pretty clearly that we're able to do that at a, at a very high percentage. Last but not least, let's talk about the patient uh, subjective results on the uh, IKDC and the Cincinnati knee rating surveys. 
Well, before we do that, I, I do want to hit one more point when it comes to return to sport, and it's going to be the time. And, and I think that the return to sport time is going to be a topic of discussion for sure, from a, whether it's orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, athletic trainers. That is going to be a question that I feel like we're going to get from this episode. And, and honestly, it's a question that we get quite a bit as we go out and speak to different conferences and organizations. And in this no population doubt. of patients with contralateral patellar tendon grafts, the return to sport time was 5.7 months. And as we say that, most people are going to be a little shocked, to be honest with you, uh, because we're getting patients on average back to sports before six months. So going back to the benefits of a contralateral patellar tendon graft, this is one that I feel like it also has its ability to shine and, and doing so because you are able to work on those two goals on the two different knees and you can work on them simultaneously and they're completely different goals. You're really not playing that game of um, teeter-tottering between too much swelling so I have to back off on strengthening and you really do them simultaneously for a good four or five months and I think that's what allows us to have that return to sport time of under six months. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I, I would love to hear from you if you're if you're listening and you'd uh, like to reach out to us. Definitely do so do via our social media channels or our emails. We'd love to hear questions about this. We get a lot of interesting looks when we go to meetings and we're talking about getting people back uh, at an average of under six months time back to their back to their sport of choice. And we can talk about that a little bit more later. Let's finish up with those subjective results and then we'll kind of talk about where this fits into the orthopedic world and the uh, in the literature in general. So both the short, intermediate, and long-term results, uh, we had the surveys taken at two and five years for this particular study. For the IKDC, on the ACL side at two years, the scores were 87, and that compares with the graph side at two years uh, at a value of 91. So the graph side was actually showing to be a little bit higher than the ACL side at two years. We had these patients take them again at five years, and similar trend where you see the graph need a little bit higher at five years, the graph side was a value of 90 and the ACL side uh, being 84. Really happy with those subjective results that we have for the ACL knee, but one of the questions that we most commonly get and pushback we get sometimes from patients is, what's that graft donor knee going to look like? Are we going to harm that knee in some way? And if we look, if we look at the two and five year uh, time points, we're still talking about IKDC scores in the uh, around 90, a little bit above at two years, just a touch below at five years, and then with the Cincinnati knee rating scale, 95.6 at two years. 94.1 at five years. It's important to note that that does not mean that the normal date, the normal knee is 100 and that those scores of 94 and 96 uh, are, are less than that. In reality, there is normative data from the IKDC in particular that shows that the normative data for uh, for those populations is not necessarily 100. So it's important to keep those in context with normative data as well. And I think that's an important point for the patients when we're delivering education as well as, you know, preoperatively when we're deciding on a contralateral patellar tendon graft, patients are asking you why, why operate on the, the, the normal knee, the healthy knee. And you explain through what we've been going through on this podcast series and answering that rationale and the reason of why we are doing what we're doing. But it's also important to note that long term, two, five years, and we have data on patients 10, 20, 25, 30 years out of surgery and that graft side still uh, does pretty well. And Dr. Benner, you can probably speak to this more from a structural standpoint, grows back pretty normal that if you had to use it for a graft again, you could. Um, so it does. And we've done exactly that. Well. 
Exactly. And we've done exactly that several times for third or even fourth time revision, you know, second or third revision surgeries, third or fourth time ACL surgeries, where we've actually gone back and reharvested the patella tendon. Uh, we, we usually get an MRI scan of the, of the uh, donor knee that we'd like to reharvest to make sure that the tendon defect was closed, that there's enough, that there's adequate tendon for, uh, for a reharvest. But uh, yeah, we believe that's an important thing to note that the tendon regenerates to the point where you could even take the graft again, use it for ACL reconstruction again, not put the knee at, at, at uh, risk of harm as far as patella tendon rupture goes. So uh, that's that's another important point. One of the most interesting pieces of feedback I always get from from colleagues, uh, friends from residency and fellowship, other surgeons that talk to me, like, how do you talk people into this? And I always find that it's such an interesting question because Scott, as you know, from being in, being in the office with us, I don't talk people into this. The majority of our patients are people who have had friends who have been to us that have said, you, you got to go, this is how I did it and everything. And I, and I had a really good outcome or they know our reputation. They look at our website and, and, and see that we do, that we do things this way. It's usually not much of a sell for me because a lot of our patients come there knowing about that and, and expecting it. But I always, I always term it to patients that, uh, you know, we talk about other graft options. That's something we'll definitely cover at a subsequent episode is why we use patella tendon grafts and why we think that's still the gold standard for ACL reconstruction, regardless of where you're going to take the graft, of which side you're going to take it from. Uh, but after we get to through the fact that we think patella tendon is the, is the graft of choice for us, then I start to tell them about the rationale behind contralateral, how we divide the rehabilitation between the knees, all those things, and basically eventually tell the patient you know what? This is our recommendation. We recommend that we take the graft from your normal knee, put it into your ACL uh, ACL deficient knee, and that's how we want to do it. That's what we believe can get you the best outcome in our hands, and we think we have the data here in this study to to really um, put that out there against what else is in the literature. But also, I tell those people, you know, if you just can't wrap your head around this, then that's fine. We don't have to do it this way. If you say, thank you, Dr. Benner, I hear what you said, but I'd rather take the graft from the same knee, uh, we just want patients to make an informed decision given our own experience in our own hands. Completely agree. And I think it's very similar for clinicians as well. And I, I would encourage the listeners to, to reach out in whatever way they can to ask questions and have some clarifications on things we've gone through. Because on the surface, without any context, without any data, without any rationale or, or explanation, you think contralateral graft, you know, why even from an orthopedic surgeon or a physical therapy standpoint, why do that? Um, and once you take the time, read the study, listen to the uh, the rationale, the discussions we have about it, you know, we, we, we do this all the time when we're traveling to meetings and talking to people on yeah. the surface when they first see the title or, you know, you read it in the program and think, wow, that seems crazy. And then you go to the talk and you listen to it and you learn why they're doing what they're doing. We get tons of feedback afterwards saying, you know what? Quad strength, you're doing pretty well. Motion's doing pretty well. Long-term, short-term, return to sport rates, everything seems to be doing well. And, and I think that that goes with why we do what we do, and, and this paper reflects that. The other thing I would say is that when patients push back at all, and definitely when surgeons push back at all, when I talk about contralateral is if you don't think it's the right thing to do for your practice, then by all means, do whatever you whatever you think works best for you. Uh, I, the, the part that I think is interesting and the part that I do push back at people on is when people say, I worry about this. I don't think this is going to work for this reason. I don't think that I would do it for this reason. 
and and we have data that shows that in our experience that those things with several thousand of ACL re- several thousand ACL reconstructions doing it this way that we just don't see those things. I understand why people have some trepidation, patients and surgeons, about doing it this way, but the proof's in the pudding when it comes to the data, and uh, and we believe that 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 backs it up pretty strongly. So, uh, and, I, and I think the the whole reason we did this article was not necessarily to say a lot different than what we've said before, but just to because we have said a lot of this information before, but this does show a pretty clear progression of how our patients move along from the time of surgery to their full recovery and then moving on to the long-term data. We wanted to put that all together for patients and say, you know what, if you're not sure about contralateral ACL reconstruction, contralateral patellar tendograph for ACL reconstruction, take a look at this data and then put that into context with your own results and say, when I look at these data, is this what I'm able to achieve at my office? If the answer is yes, then then I would encourage you to keep doing with your, what you're doing. If the answer is no, then I would encourage you to learn some more about what we do. Ask questions of us if it doesn't all doesn't all make sense, or if you want some more information, um, because we we would we want other people to be able to to experience the results as well. Don't get me wrong; the the approach is not without is not without um, not without negatives. Um, specifically, when patients ask me, "Well, isn't that going to be another scar?" Yes, it is. There's no doubt about that, that cosmetically you're, you have you have more scars by going to the opposite knee. Another question I get is, well, what if you have a patella tendon rupture on the other side? What if you have a fracture on the other side? What if you have an infection on the other side? That's actually something we have looked at specifically, and we find that all those complications are better handled if they happen on a graft knee as opposed to the same knee that's just had an ACL reconstruction. That's another a discussion for another day and, and, and a topic that we also have uh, have some data on. Um, but I think it's important to note that uh, those things can be handled efficiently and still have a good outcome and that they're also very rare. In our study on that, I believe we had um, I believe we had like 0.3 percent, like th- two or th- like three or four out of a thousand that had infections and or patella tendon ruptures, fractures, some of those complications that people would worry about. So it's not zero, but it is very low. And we believe those complications are more easily handled if they happen on the opposite knee rather than happening on the same knee that's just had an ACL reconstruction. Lastly, if you want to learn more about these methods, you can contact us on a, on a, in a lot of different ways via social media or via, via email at all of our social media channels um, moving forward. So uh, we want to tell everyone thank you for listening to this three-part series on using the contralateral patellotendograph for ACL reconstruction. And uh, that'll be the end of our three-part series here. Scott, thanks a lot. And if you want to contact us, you can reach out to us via our social media channels, either on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast or email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. <laughs>